0: Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, so grateful, Lord, that out of all the nations on the planet earth, you have selected that tiny nation. You selected Israel, its land, its people, and its prophets to bring forth the Messiah, the plan of salvation, to birth the scriptures, and to hand that legacy down throughout history. And you told Israel that you did not select them because they were vast or greater in number or better than any people. You just decided to set your love upon them and to demonstrate your grace through them. Father, we would pray that you would just make that a productive tour and bring those, Lord, who you would, that you would provide as you see fit. And we're excited once again to go over to that land and see the place where our Savior walked and taught, and Abraham spied out and viewed that portion of land that you gave to your children, Jerusalem and all of its glory. Now, tonight, Lord, as we read about our Savior, I pray that our hearts would rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ, who was, still is the same yesterday, today, and forever never changes. And the same things that he did in the past, he is able to do in the present. Help us, Lord, to trust with all the resources you've given us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in this life to you and your beckoning, your bidding. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading the Gospels, which are packed full of lives that Jesus touched and he changed. Yesterday, I had the privilege of doing two weddings. I had originally was planned to do three, but we gave one of them away to another pastor. But the first one that I did was a wedding that I noticed a couple weeks ago was the same name. The bride and the groom had the exact same last name. Now I was a little suspicious of that. Because usually people don't marry with the same last names. And so, you know, you think, hmm, what's up here? And so I found out That this was a married couple who divorced and they were remarrying and what happened is uh, about a year ago uh, I think I hope I have the story at least a couple years ago she came to Jesus Christ they were married for about a year things didn't work out they divorced then she met Jesus Christ Jesus changed her life her ex-husband found out about it, started talking to her about it, and she said, well, come to church. So he started coming to church here. And he was intrigued, and, uh, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and he kept coming, and, uh, you know, she says, look, I'm not, you know, asking you for anything. I just want to see you uh, come to Christ and grow in the Lord. But the, the long and short of it is that he made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and they decided, by God's love, to reconcile their differences... They fell in love with the love that Jesus gave to them. Uh, He had a complete, listen, he shared at his wedding, it was like a completely changed person because he was a completely changed person. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And it was so evident. I just sat back and went, this is cool. (laughs) Completely changed, in love with his wife, wanting to honor God, wanting to do it right build on a solid foundation. What proof that was, that Jesus is the same and he still changes people's lives who, who come to him, who dare to trust him. And it was just a great wedding and a great testimony to all of the friends and the family who came, believers and unbelievers alike. And so we read about in the gospels that Jesus met different people and everyone he met, everyone who opened their hearts to him, were changed And they were changed permanently. He touched and changed their lives. Now we read about last week in the ninth chapter that Jesus was the master over the destructive forces of nature, calming the seas and the winds of Galilee. Then we saw that he was the victor over demonism as the guy who was demon-possessed was free of the demons. And tonight we're going to see Jesus uh... the victor over disease and the victor over death still changing lives now we're going to look at suffering tonight a little bit because the cases that we view here in beginning in verse forty are people who are suffering and suffering always poses a problem to anyone considering god the question that has been bouncing around the universe since the beginning is this If there is a God, how could a loving and just God allow suffering to coexist with himself? It's the theological question of theodicy, a just God and an evil world. And people have grappled with that question. David grappled with that question. It bothered David. You're not the first one to ask that. You're not unique. (laughs) David, it bugged him. In Psalm 73, he voices his problem. He says, surely God is good to Israel and to such as have a pure heart. But as for me, though that's my premise, that God is a good God. As for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps well nigh slipped. When I saw the wicked and I saw their prosperity, you know, he said, I believe that there's a good God, but I look around and I see the prosperous, you know, having all the fun and they seem to be, uh, or the wicked prospering and they're having all the fun. I see so many of the godly people suffering. He said, this really bugs me. I almost slept. I almost cashed it in. I lost my faith. Later on, he, you keep reading as he reasons through it and he gets past the short term and looks off into the future and he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I considered their end. And it made all the difference in the world. He went into the sanctuary in Jerusalem and the temple and he got an eternal perspective and he saw the end result in eternity of those who are wicked in this life. They might have a good now, but it's very temporary. They won't have a good for all of eternity. But those who live righteously may have it bad temporarily, but in the long run in God's kingdom, they'll have it good. So he said, it really bothered me, but then I considered their end and I was all right. Now, people deal with evil in a lot of different ways. Some will say, well, if there is a good God or, uh, you know, they grapple with the question of a good God and evil and, and many will say, well, I'll just, I'll be an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. There couldn't be a God and have God coexist with evil. And because there is evil, there cannot be a good or a just God. And so they say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. Well, think about it. If there is no God, then there's no ultimate value system, and there's no ultimate good or evil. And so you really don't have a problem with theodicy. There's no God. You've done away with your problem because you have no ultimate value system. Others will say, well, I'm not quite sure. There might be a God, but I, I, I don't know if there's a God, so I'll be an agnostic. Others will say, well, no, I believe that there's a God and all, but I'm a deist, they'll say. In other words, a God exists, but he's so far removed and unconcerned from us that it really doesn't matter. Hence, the God is dead theology that was very popular some years back. Others will look at the problem of evil and they'll deal with it with a false faith false theology a simplistic view they will say well i believe that there is a good god and if you're truly spiritual you won't suffer disease if you truly have faith you'll never have problems you will have prosperity you can have the best car the biggest bank account the biggest home if you claim it by faith and you don't live a satan defeated life hallelujah praise the lord and so you just claim it and say the positive things and the right things. That is a very superficial, oversimplistic way of dealing with the problem, and it doesn't last very long, and it produces a lot of guilty Christians. Because some of the godliest people I've met have suffered greatly. And you've got a big problem when I can show you a godly person who isn't prospering, and I can show you a godless person who is suffering, you've got a problem. And yet, many Christians will point their fingers at godly Christians and say, well, if you really had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering this. That's bogus. It's bunk. It's errant theology. It is aberrant teaching. It doesn't wash. They tried to do that with Job. His three so-called friends came up to him. And the whole counsel of the book is they were trying to tell Job that he was unrighteous, that he had sinned in his life, which is interesting to me because the faith theologians today say the same thing about Job. I have read their literature. They say, well, Job didn't really have faith, and he didn't have to be sick, and he didn't have to suffer the loss." That's interesting because as I read the book of Job, God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you looked at him? Have you considered him? He's a man perfect in his ways. He hates evil and he loves good. So God exonerated him above everybody else, and yet the faith theologians, in their oversimplistic views, will say, Well, he didn't have to suffer that. He wasn't a man of faith, he didn't have to be sick. Now, Job was suffering, and he was himself puzzled. And when his three friends came and laid that trip on him, Job said, miserable comforters are you all. Here I am suffering, and this is the time where I need my friends to help me, man, to give me a hug, to support me. And you guys are telling me, Well, Job, if you were really spiritual, you know, you wouldn't have this happen. Thanks a lot, buddy. You're a bunch of miserable comforters. And there's a lot of miserable comforters around today. I did a series that was very popular, especially for those who were suffering. I called it Christians and the Crucible of Pain. And we tried to deal with the whole issue and several facets about suffering and evil. And so many people said, oh, thank you so much for that series. I remember one time I was talking to a young man on the radio. He has a call-in radio show. And he called and he said... Thank you for your teachings on suffering. I am suffering right now. I have a disease. I've trusted that God would heal me, but he hasn't seen fit to do it. But my parents are into this faith theology, and they're walking around the house. Every time I see them, when they come home, they say, you don't have enough faith. You should be healed. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You don't need to be in that condition. This is the devil. You don't have to accept this. And the idea of this false doctrine is that your words are containers and whatever you say you shape your destiny by your words they're the containers of your faith so you can release faith by confessing it I confess that I'm better And if you say something negative, well, it's going to happen. You shouldn't have said that. If you say you're going to get a cold, you know, it's, it's springtime or it's, excuse me, wintertime, you think, you know, every winter I get a cold. Oh, you said it. You're going to get it. If you wouldn't have said it, you wouldn't get it. I heard of three people traveling in an automobile and they were driving down the street, going to their destination and they're talking and one person says, well, how's your brother doing? Oh, my brother, he's not feeling very well. He's sick. The person said, you shouldn't say that. That's a negative confession. You should say he thinks he's sick, but don't say he's sick, because then he'll be sick. He said, all right, he thinks he's sick. Feel better? And so the one asking the question asked the other person, well, how's your brother? He said, well, he thinks he's dead. Now, there is some truth to a person's outlook. You can be a negative person. I've met a lot of them. Everything's on a downer and they, they you know, they give themselves ulcers. They give themselves diseases just by their outlook in life. They're so negative and they, they have no faith and they trust God for nothing. And it's always, oh, 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 it's a drag. And there are others who have a good outlook. But the idea that your words... That's all, it's all it is to it. You just trust God by confessing. It's ludicrous. What if I say, well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. <laughs> Am I going to change into a primate? <laughs> There's all sorts of reasons for evil. There's not really a good pat answer now. I don't want to get too far on this. I could develop a whole message of this, and I really don't want to. The point is this. God is concerned... About suffering, as we see here in the Gospels, Jesus met suffering head on. He had compassion. And Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when you see Jesus having compassion for the multitudes, when you see Jesus touching the sick, touching the leper, healing, you see a God who's concerned in the face of human suffering. Why does God allow suffering to exist? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't know all the answers or all the ramifications. We've done one series on it, but I know this. I've watched God use it in the life of a Christian. And I've heard this concept thrown out by the modern faith theologians. How can they say God, God would never use evil? It's all over the Bible. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And that is a principle written from Genesis to Revelation that God uses evil for the good of his servants. God causes all things to work together for the good of them that love him. It can be a tool. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A lot of attention. God has gotten a lot of people's attention through suffering. We've seen God use it. And so it was, verse 40, wow, what an introduction, too long, when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was the ruler, the Greek word is archon, it's the highest ranking official in the synagogue, he was the guy in charge of the entire service, the scripture reading, the song service, the maintenance of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. If you come with us in May, we'll show you what he was the keeper of. The ruins of that synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now I imagine it took a lot of guts for Jairus to come to Jesus. The synagogue had closed its doors on Jesus, had sort of booted him out of the institution. Jairus knew the Pharisees around Galilee, and probably it was very risky for the archon, the ruler of the synagogue, to come and ask Jesus for anything, since Judaism was by and large against him. The religious leaders, the elite, were against him. But you know, when you're desperate, you'll do anything. And I can understand a man who has a child, his only daughter— sick. It's like, hey, I don't care what those guys say. I'm going to find Jesus and ask him to heal my daughter. So he came and he begged. And she was only 12 years old. And that meant that she was in the dawn of womanhood. You know, by 13 or 14, a woman could be married. That's right. They called her a woman at that time in ancient Israel. They developed a lot quicker emotionally and often physically than today in many cases. Well, today, uh, Men and women, boys and girls are maturing at a rapid rate. But at 12 years of age, it is possible that she could be contemplating marriage at this point. She had her whole life in front of her. And now she's dying. Now, she was 12 years old. And it's interesting, is it not, that the next woman that Jesus meets on his way to this house is a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. She's had a disease for 12 years and is about to get healed. The girl has been alive for 12 years and it looks like she's going to die. It's quite a contrast, all in the same happening. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said... Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng you and press you. And you say, Who touched me? You know, it was an odd question. He's on the way to the house, and the crowds are pressing in around him. And the crowds in the Middle East, you know, you think Disneyland is bad. (laughs) Or waiting in line at Uncle Cliff's. You haven't been to a market in the Middle East. I mean, they just press and throng. And in the midst of all these crowds, Jesus goes, who touched me? Now, he must have asked it in sort of a authoritative way because it kind of scared them off. They denied. I I I didn't touch you. (laughs) Not me. You know, almost like they thought it bugged him. Who touched me? And then Peter being the kind of guy that he is, that's what I like, Peter. Lord, figure it out. People are thronging you. Everybody touched you. I mean, everybody and his mother touched you, and you're asking who touched me. I mean, everybody could say they did. But Jesus recognized the difference between the pressing of the crowd and the touch of faith. There's a lot of people around who press around Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, Jesus this, Jesus that. But Jesus recognizes the throng of the crowd versus the touch of faith. She just touched the hem of his garment. She didn't press him. Now, the Jewish men wore tassels on their garments, and it was a blue tassel according to the uh, Mosaic law. And uh, it was a way to distinguish as they were keeping the covenant with God, the blue tassels on the robe. And so Matthew's gospel tells us that she said in her mind I know that if I touch the hem of his garment I'm going to be healed so she set up in her own heart a point of contact and that was the hem of his garment the hem of Jesus garment did not glow or anything it wasn't like wherever he went (laughs) but she believed in her heart that if I, if I just touch, as soon as I touch the hem of that garment, I'm going to be healed. That point of contact was a point that allowed her to release her faith in Jesus Christ. You now, sometimes we have faith that is dormant, and we require some point of contact to release it. That's what I think was the valid point about the handkerchiefs of Paul. Literally the sweatbands. It wasn't little prayer cloths that Paul you know, drew his hand over and then sent it through the mail. These were the sweatbands in the gospel, or in the book of Acts. Paul had sweatbands to keep the, you know, the perspiration out of his face, and he wore them. And it says he threw his sweatbands on some of the sick people, and they were cured. I think that those sweatbands, like the tassel in the garment, was simply a point of contact to release the faith of the individual. I know if I touch it, I'm going to be healed. Oh, I'm getting closer. Here goes. It's going to happen. She touched it. I believe she was healed. And so Jesus says, Who touched me? Now, the ruler of the synagogue at this point is probably asking, Who cares? I've got a sick 12 year old and you're bugged about who touched you. Don't you think he'd be getting bugged by now? Don't you hate interruptions? Don't you hate when you have a plan and it's all set out and you think God ought to work a certain way and you can see what you think should happen and it doesn't happen? You go, God, what are you doing? We hate interruptions. I remember speaking about Israel. I was taking a tour over to Israel and it was going great. Everybody showed up at the airport on time. The luggage was checked on time. The flight was on time. I thought, this is great. You know, you want to get there on time and get everybody pumped because it's an arduous journey. It's not a a vacation, it's a study trip. And so we get over to England. We spend the night in a hotel. We get up the next morning, everything's great, but they couldn't fit all the luggage on the bus because they sent the wrong size bus. So I say, put all the people on the bus, I'll take care of your luggage, leave it here. I'll meet you at the airport. So I have to round up a bunch of these British cabs to follow the bus to Heathrow Airport, so that we, or to Gatwick Airport, so that we can fly and get everything on the plane. And of course, the taxi didn't come on time, they lost their way to the airport. we were late. The plane with the passengers, I watched take off. And I have all their luggage. And there's all these women who are so upset that I'm standing with their toothbrush and their makeup kit and all of their luggage as they go over to the Middle East and I'm, you know, waving goodbye. And I didn't get there till the next day. The next evening. And so there was a whole day and a half delay in the trip. And you know, at, at this time my spirits were so high. Now I'm just like, this is a drag. I don't want to be here. I just want to be in Hawaii, all right? And I'm trying to get all this luggage of two guys, women or I think it was Lenya, you and I were taking all of the luggage ourselves over to Israel. And it was oh I hate those interruptions. But God always has some purpose and plan for them. I haven't figured out why that particular one has happened. but I'm sure God knows. This poor gal for 12 years hasn't been able to attend a worship service. According to Leviticus, because she has a flow of blood, and a woman after even having a child and even during her monthly period was barred from public worship because of the flow of blood for hygienic reasons, And so for 12 years, she has been considered unclean. She's been afraid to be around people. She didn't want to touch people because of the ceremonial uncleanness. That's probably why she thought just the garment will be sufficient. And so Jesus then draws attention to her. And I'm sure she's embarrassed. Who touched me? Finally, she fesses up. Jesus said, somebody touched me, verse 46, for I perceive power going out of me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. She's so embarrassed. And falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Jesus didn't do this to embarrass her. Jesus wanted a testimony to the crowd, a public confession. Now that's why we call people publicly. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you've never come forward and made it a public demonstration of your faith, it's important to do so. There's something that just settles it in your heart. When you say, I am going to demonstrate before this crowd that I'm making a break with the world and going to follow Jesus. Jesus died publicly. Jesus called every disciple publicly and told us to confess him before men. And I think the best start is among a crowd of people like this where we love Jesus, we applaud you for doing so, we're encouraging you for doing so. It's a lot easier to do it here than it is a crowd that is against you. And so the first step is, at least in this context, is around believers. Now in this context of the Bible, Jesus put her on the spot to testify publicly. And he said to her daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, you know, the ruler of the synagogue is going, come on, come on, hurry up, hurry up, just let's go. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. That was the worst words he ever heard in his whole life. His spirit's were anticipatory and now they're just sunk. Those are hopeless words. Some of you have stood at a casket of a loved one and you felt that hopeless empty feeling. You can't bring them back. Your daughter is dead. He's probably thinking, "Why did this woman interrupt? Jesus could have made it to the house on time." Your daughter is dead. I remember the night my father called me and told me my brother was killed in a motorcycle accident. I remember the feeling. It's like the bottom of my life had fallen out. I thought, this can't be happening. This happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. It doesn't happen to us. And yet it had happened. Your daughter is dead. He felt absolutely hopeless. And then he said, do not trouble the teacher. Have you ever heard those words? Has Satan ever come to you when you've had something on your heart to tell Jesus and he's whispered, don't bug God. This is so insignificant. Who are you? You think God's going to listen to this? This is insignificant. Don't trouble him. Notice Jesus' response. When Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. I love Jesus' style. Didn't come and say, you're not living a life of faith. You're living a Satan-defeated life. Just confess it. He said, ah, don't be afraid. Only believe. should be made well. I love his style. Now, true faith is right here. True faith is when everything has fallen out of your life A loved one has died. You've lost your job. The doctor shows you the x-ray. And in the midst of the work circumstances, you say, I believe God loves me. I trust God even though I die. That's really true faith. That's faith on trial. Yeah, but why would God allow? I don't know why God allows. All I know is I still believe him and I still trust him. In any circumstance, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, and John. This is sort of like his intimate trio of buddies. Uh, They were in the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit closer, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured with Moses and Elijah. And so, this trio Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all out, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Talitha kumi, it's not in this text, but in another one, that was the Aramaic tongue, little girl or damsel arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. I bet you. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, we don't know how long this girl was dead. She was dead long enough for them to get in professional mourners, I'll tell you that. By the time they got to the house, the funeral was already going on. Now, in ancient times, there was a few prescribed customs when a person died. When a person died, it was customary to rend the garments... To grab the cloak and to tear it. If your father or mother died, you were to tear it over the heart. Yes, there were even laws in the Talmud about where you tear the garment. The hole had to be big enough to fit your entire fist through, according to the Talmud. If it wasn't your mom and dad, but it was somebody else, you would tear it. You could just tear a little bit. But you have to tear it near the heart. The second thing is that you would hire professional mourners. I know it sounds contrived, but you got to understand something. You go to a funeral in America, and, you know, we sort of capitalize on decorum in funeral services, right? You have the nice music and the nice smells, and you keep it quiet, and you hush, hush, hush. (laughs) Not in the Middle East. They are very vociferous. They are very loud. And if you've ever seen a Middle Eastern funeral and the wails of a woman in mourning, you can hear it down the block. They would hire mourners whose job it was to mourn. You pay them money. And they make a huge, you know, oh, big production. They start crying. They're getting paid for it, of course. And they would call out the person's name. And if the person had any dead relatives, the mourners called out the dead relative's name along with the name of the person who has died to bring back the memories and to mourn together as a community. The third thing that was prescribed were musicians, professional musicians. You didn't have to be talented in a Jewish funeral because you were summoned to play dissonant, discordant sounds and just play something out of tune and, you know, the idea was to make a, a, a ruckus, a noise. The Talmud said that even the poorest Jew should have at least two mourners and two musicians at the funeral. Everyone should have somebody to mourn, make a lament. So they were all gathered together. That's why Jesus said, ah, what's this big to do? She's only asleep. Now, Jesus knew she was dead, but often he used the metaphor of sleep for death. And the Bible uses it frequently. Now, they laughed him to scorn, so he put them all out. And just with the mom and the dad and the disciples in the room, he said, little girl, arise. Some of you have lost children. Children. The saddest funerals I ever do are funerals for children. The toughest times I have as a minister are the, children of little, or the funerals of little babies, children. I, it, it's difficult to understand, and, and words are trite at times like that. It's tough. But I'll tell you this, parents if you've lost a child, a son or a daughter by death, the same words that Jesus spoke here, he will speak to your child. Little girl, arise. There is a resurrection. And there will be, I believe, a reunion time, the Bible says, in heaven. When you will meet that child again, you will meet the person whom God has raised up. This life is temporary. All of us are going to die. We need to, I think, kind of get that through our heads that the death rate is the same, one out of one. None of us gets out of this thing alive. And so we need to prepare for the future. And if you've lost a little girl or a little boy by death. Are you prepared to meet God for that reunion? Little girl arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. He charged them to tell no one what had happened. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. Now, whoever Jesus sends, he equips. He never sends anybody out without the right equipment. Now, Jesus gave us a mandate, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'm excited because right now there's a whole bunch of people from this fellowship in the Philippines, in Moscow, in, is it North Dakota or South Dakota? South Dakota, preaching on the Indian reservations and with the people there. And it excites me. They have taken the mandate to go very seriously, to go into all the world. And at the beginning at the, of the school of ministry, a lot of them said, I don't know what I'm called to do. I don't know what I'm gifted at. I don't know if I'm gifted at all. And now they're going out, having identified the gifts that God has given to them, putting them on the line and watching God work as Jesus told his disciples to go. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics apiece. Travel light, Jesus said. You want to travel far, travel light. Now later on, Jesus Christ will tell the same disciples, take a bag, take a couple tunics, and even bring a sword along for defense. This is a temporary mandate. He is getting them... To find out what total dependence means. It's sort of a little journey. You know, just go around Galilee. It's not a long trip. But as you go, you will be dependent upon God, just like the children of Israel had to be dependent in the wilderness. Go for it. Just see what happens. Just trust. Go. Leave. Take, leave your money bags at home and go. Travel light. Now, when we go to Israel, we do anything but travel light. Most people carry two, sometimes three suitcases and have, you know, enough for a couple changes of clothes every single day. Jesus wanted them to travel light. If you're on a bus, that's fine. If you're walking, it's a drag. So Jesus wanted the message to be uppermost. And so he sent them very simply. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now they understood what this meant. The ancient rabbis, whenever they would travel into Gentile territory, believed that the very dust that a Gentile touches was contaminated, was defiled, would ceremonially defile them. And so they would go out of that town, and they would shake the dust of that nasty Gentile filth off of their Uh, sandals and off of their clothing and they would go on so Jesus is saying when you go into a place and they don't receive you you give them the gesture the same gesture that a Jewish rabbi would give a Gentile town because of their contamination it's a testimony against that city for not having received you and the gospel so they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere now I've got to tell you I believe that God still heals people today. You know why I believe that? Because the Bible says it and because I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. I don't think God heals every Christian every time. I don't think God owes it to every Christian every time. But I've watched him do it. There's two extremes when it comes to healing and the miraculous. There is the cessationist position which says, everything miraculous has ceased. It has passed away with the apostolic era. That's the cessationist view. I am not a cessationist. The other extreme is the sensationalist view. The whoopee doo view. The everything all the time, constant miracle. You've got to see a daily thing happening. The newest and the greatest experience. I think both of those are extremes. Now God heals. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The book of Acts is a prototype for the church, but I think it's something that was meant to continue throughout history. The gifts of the Spirit are for today. All of the gifts of the Spirit, I believe, are for today. I don't think any of them has ceased. And there's good biblical exegetical ground for that. And we've done a 31-week series on it, so I don't want to belabor the point. But I've seen God heal. I have been the recipient of divine healing. I've watched God heal miraculously. I saw in front of me, I saw a hand with a a pinched radial nerve and a guy who was paralyzed move his arm. Move it with complete motion and range. and, And have his doctor document it. It wasn't just, yeah, I sort of think I'm kind of healed. When you're healed, you know it. And he knew it. The book of Acts, which is the sequel to this book, written by Luke, Gives us the clue. It says, The former treatise which I wrote unto you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, gave his apostles, so on and so forth. He began in the book of Luke to do and to teach. The book of Acts records how Jesus continues to do and to teach through the apostles. Then, on Pentecost, when the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit filled the church, and they said, what is this? Are you drunk with new wine? What is this? Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophets. And he quotes Joel. And then he says, and this promise is for you, your children, and as many as are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's you. You are afar off from that perspective. And God has called you. And the promise of the Holy Spirit with all of his power is for you. He commanded them. And they went. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, that's John the Baptist, had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. You know, it's interesting that Jesus' headquarters was in Galilee, Capernaum, and just a few miles away, the headquarters of Herod. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great by his fourth wife. His headquarters was in Tiberias. They were right next to each other. Yet Jesus never saw Herod, never sought to see him. Herod wanted to see him, but Jesus had nothing to say to him. Isn't that interesting? One time they came to Jesus and he said, they said to him, Herod wants to see you. You know what Jesus said? Go tell that fox that I've only got a certain amount of time to work. The night is coming. I've only got a certain amount of time in the day and I'm going to do that. And he never even responded. He just says, Send him a message. He did see him later on when he stood before Pilate. And Pilate knew that Jesus was from Galilee and the jurisdiction of Perea and Galilee belonged to Herod Antipas. And so he sent him to Herod and then Herod sent him back to Pilate. But here he hears these rumors and uh, wants to see Jesus. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Today, Bethsaida is a bunch of ruins. Not many people travel to it. We'll show it to you when we're there. It's made out of black basalt stone, like the volcanic ash on the west side. It's that kind of stuff. And all of the structures in that city were built out of that darkened stone. And you'll see the ruins of it. And he took them to a deserted place. And you can see it out there by the Sea of Galilee, the Uh, open areas by Bethsaida. And when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. But when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. Now, I think, I know I know, Jesus didn't do anything by accident. He wanted to get the disciples away. They'd been busy. But then the crowds came, and Jesus knew they would come. And Jesus knew that they would be apart from provisions and that they would need provisions. So this is a lesson for the disciples. The day is wearing on. They're hungry. The disciples, being very pragmatic, say, Look, there's too many folks. Get them out of here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, which meant there were a lot more people than 5,000. 5,000 men, no doubt many wives and many children with those men. Up to, conservatively, 15,000 people. We're out there. And Jesus turns to his disciples and goes, feed them. And I'm sort of thought, what, are you joking? What are you, how are we going to buy the food? For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude so they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. Another gospel records the answer. So we only have a few loaves and fish. What are they among so many? I'll oh, make them sit down. Now, I think what Jesus is doing is A, showing a lesson that God can provide where there's no seemingly physical way. It looks impossible. God can come through. But secondly... It's sort of a prototype of what the disciples will be doing in a greater sense as they go to evangelize the world. Within a year's time, Jesus will turn to the 12 disciples, the apostles, 11. By that time, Judas will be long gone. And Jesus will say to them, ignorant fishermen, without a seminary education. Hey, okay you guys go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature? Now... The disciples would have felt, going to all the world, us, what are we among so many? Well, you remember that story, the incident of the loaves and the fish, when you guys asked the same question? And how the issue wasn't what you had, but what I could do through you? And isn't it interesting that Jesus made the disciples make them sit down in 50 and make them take the food and pass it out to them? He didn't have to do that. Jesus could have waved his hands, couldn't he? And we said, "Watch this!" And had manna fall out of out of the sky. If he wanted to, he could have. Or he could have gone, and all of a sudden a you know green chili cheeseburger would have appeared on every lap, (laughs) with extra cheese, of course. Or a fish fillet sandwich and fries and a coke. He could do anything he wanted to. Why did he use the disciples? Because he always uses human instruments to accomplish his work. And the evangelization of the world, he chooses instruments like us. What are we among so many? Have you ever asked that question? What could I ever do? That is not the issue, folks. The issue is not your weakness, the issue is his strength. The equation of a miracle, five plus two equals not much. Five plus two, loaves and fishes, plus Jesus can feed a multitude. You and your little gift and your little talent, you might say, oh, it's not much. But put Jesus in the equation. And he delights in using simple people. Simple people. I believe that's the real thrust of the church, don't you? You know that? And Ephesians says that. The thrust of the ministry is to train up people to do the work of the ministry. A pastor, teacher, God has given to the gift, prophets, evangelists, and teaching shepherds for the perfecting of the saints so that you will do the work of the ministry. And I love it because you do it. Listen, I don't go around going... I've just gotten a vision from God. We need to start a convalescent ministry. You know how those things have come about? People have said, I feel really called. We, we really need a convalescent home ministry, Sky." That's great. That's wonderful. Why don't you go do that? Me? Yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't know anything about it. Well, listen, you know as much as anybody else. Why don't you just make some phone calls? Me? Yeah. Get a few people. Go for it. And that's how it started. And so many other ministries have started. And that's how, by the way, that's how... Most of our people get on staff because they're working already and they're already involved here at the church in the work of the ministry. And all we're doing is cutting them loose from secular employment, from having to go out and get a job. We're just giving them their livelihood because we don't want them to quit the ministry they're already doing. They've just said, I believe that God can work through me. And they're doing it. And I think that was really the lesson for the disciples uh, from here on out, boy, I really wish we could have covered up to verse 20, but time is up and I've gotten long winded again. Father, we are so grateful for the person of Jesus Christ who not only gave us teachings, who not only did many wonderful works, but unlike Buddha, unlike Muhammad, unlike any other earthly teacher, Jesus and Jesus only rose again from the dead, conquering men's last and greatest enemy. And because of that resurrection, he lives today at your right hand. He makes intercession for us. He gives us his resources. And we have hope for our future and our resurrection from the dead. Lord, even as Jesus conquered disease, death, destruction, demonism, and every person he touched, it was evident, it was obvious by the changed life. I pray that our lives would reflect your change and your love And once again, Lord, I am so grateful for a healthy body of believers who love your word, who are perfected because of the word of God, grow up in maturity because of it. And then as they become mature, they get involved to do the work of the ministry without prodding. The only prodding they receive is that which your Holy Spirit provides. So Lord, raise up prayer warriors. Raise up Sunday school workers. Raise up evangelists. Raise up pastors and teachers, administrators, from this flock. Because, Lord, we know that that is your will. And you can do a lot through the common person who dares to trust in you. Everyone here, a minister of Jesus Christ. How exciting, Lord. How grateful we are that you condescend and you delight to use imperfect instruments like ourselves. Lord, we've called our fathers today and we've wished Happy Father's Day to so many and we want to say to you, our Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, Happy Father's Day to you. Lord, I pray that our relationship with you would become richer and sweeter and more intense and be evident by our obedience to you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for one another. And thank you for Jesus who lives in each of us. It's in his name we pray and commit our week to you. Amen. Let's stand. Next week, Jesus gives his disciples a test. And one of them passes. We'll see which one. 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 one.